as we find it in John chapter 18, verses 28 through 40. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. And Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. This happened so that the words Jesus had spoken indicating the kind of death he was going to die would be fulfilled. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked. Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. And Jesus answered, you're right in saying I'm a king. In fact, for this reason I was born. And for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate asked. And with this, he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in a rebellion. This today is the word of God for you. And I pray that as the Spirit uses it, that it would penetrate our hearts in a way that not only would we understand perhaps a bit more of God, but we would understand how very deeply that God does indeed know us and know our hearts. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So I would imagine that most of you have had the pleasure of being interviewed by someone at some point in your life. Maybe you're being interviewed for a job. Maybe you've been interviewed for a scholarship of some kind. But when you get interviewed, I think it generally is a fairly nerve-wracking process because there's one person, sometimes there's multiple people, and you come into a room and you sit kind of in the hot seat, right? And they're all looking at you and they're all asking questions and you know good and well that as you're trying to answer the questions, you can look them in the eye and you know their little brains are just turning with thoughts and evaluations about you. And that was the same thing, the time that the first time I interviewed to be a senior pastor of a church, I'm an associate at Signal Mountain Press in Chattanooga and I get this call from a church in Fort Myers that said, we'd like to talk to you about being our senior pastor, and to be real honest with you, when I was with, on the phone with the chair of the search committee, I was desperately scrambling to find a map in my desk because I did not know where Fort Myers, Florida was. And so he said, we want to come see you. 
And so I was like, you know, that's fine if you want to do that. We want to come to Chattanooga. And most of the time when a search committee comes, you know, you realize that this is a confidential thing, that, that I'm not going to tell anyone that. I don't know what's going to happen, right? But for some reason, the Covenant Press Search Committee came in the church van, and it was marked, and they parked right in the front. And they came into the sanctuary, and instead of spreading out, you know, to be less obvious, they all sat together on the same pew. And during the passing of the peace, they were more than happy to tell everybody there that they were there to interview me. So uh, I don't think they got invited to the potluck supper after the church service. But they were very thorough in their examination of me. And and we had dinner the night before, Saturday night, which I don't like staying out late on Saturday night if I'm preaching the next day. We had a three-hour dinner. I mean, they're asking me every question you can imagine. Then the next morning, they go to both worship services. They come teach me here at Sunday school. And then when church was over, as I'm standing outside greeting people, they're standing like 10 feet away, listening to all the conversations. And I mean, there was a part of me that wanted to go, can y'all just move, but give me a little room to breathe. But they told me later, we wanted to see what the conversations we like. They were counting the number of people that I hugged to see if I loved people and if people loved me, right? So needless to say, it was a very thorough interview process. But what they didn't know was the whole time they were interviewing me, I was interviewing them. I had a friend who was on vacation on Sanibel Island. And I said, do me a favor. You're gonna be there on a Sunday. Drive into Fort Myers, go to this church, go hang out in the nursery, see if the kids' diapers are being changed. How many kids are crying? Go into the student ministry room. Are there any young people in this church? Go walk the property. Is it in disarray? Is it well cared for? Go to church. Are the people friendly? Is it warm? Is it biblical? And so Sunday afternoon when they're all going back to Fort Myers and they're all talking about me, guess what? I was on the phone with my friend and I was talking about them, right? So anytime there's an examination going on, that's just true in life, isn't it? I mean, more often than not, not only are you being examined, but you're also doing the examination. I mean, the first time you go out on a date, both of you are examining the other person. When you're in traffic and you think you're the only person evaluating, you're thinking, oh my gosh, that guy in front of me is an idiot. The guy behind you is wondering why you just cut him off, right? So both of you are being examined. It's just true in life. But what I need you to realize today is it's also true in your spiritual life. There's so much conversation today in our culture. There's so much talk about what we believe about God and who is God and what role does he play in our culture? And is there such a thing as absolute truth? And is he the sole means of salvation? And surely he can't alone be the means of salvation. All these other faiths have to work. And and there's all this examination about God. But people make no mistake about it. We can almost get kind of prideful about our examination of the nature and character of God and who God is. But the whole time we're examining God, guess what? He's examining us. He's examining you. He's examining your heart. When you study scripture, scripture studies you. J.I. Packer writes in his book, Knowing God, which if you haven't read it yet, write it down and read it. It's in the top five of all Christian books. Everybody ought to read it. He writes this, Knowing God. What matters supremely, therefore, is not the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that he knows me 
I am graven on the palms of his hands. I'm never out of his mind. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. So yes, we may be searching and trying to examine God, but God is constantly searching and knowing us, revealing himself to us. And that's exactly the dynamic that is happening in John 18, this trial that is happening. And we've been in this sermon series, Walking to the Cross, It's the last week of Jesus's life. He's in Jerusalem. He's getting ready. He knows what's going to happen. And we've come to some challenging subject matter. We've looked at innocent suffering. What what do we do with innocent suffering? Last week, we looked at the duplicitous nature of who we are as human beings, that we like to stand with Jesus, and we sure like to stand with ourselves. And today, we come to Jesus on trial, Jesus being examined. And the problem when we, you and I read the word trial in the scripture, we tend to think of American jurisprudence, like a trial is going to be swift and fair and unbiased. And people understand that's not at all what was happening in Jesus's life. Jesus had already been arrested, as we saw last week. The soldiers come get him. The Jewish religious leaders take him to Annas and Caiaphas, and they thoroughly try him. Trumped up charges. He's a blasphemer. He says he's God. And so they decide that this man, Jesus, is worthy of death. And so having reached that conclusion, at that point, they bring him to Pilate. And they get to Pilate, and Pilate naturally then says, well, verse 29, what charges are you bringing against this man? And because the charges are so thin, To begin with, they don't answer the question. They just say in verse 30, if he wasn't guilty, we wouldn't have brought him to you. Right? So just understand, he's already guilty. We've already decided that. Talk about a rush to judgment. But here's the thing. Pilate, I think, was super smart here because this man's life is being put in his hands. And so what does Pilate do? He's in front of a big crowd. But he's got to determine, is this man worthy? What he's done, is it worthy of death? So it says, Pilate took him inside. They go into the palace. And you and I know that the way that you answer questions is going to be different if you're in front of a crowd versus if you're in a one-on-one conversation. When you're just one-on-one with somebody, it's going to be a little more intense and it's going to be a little more honest. And so Pilate looks at Jesus and he says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus turns to Pilate and he says, is that your own idea? Or did others talk about you, talk to you about me? Now remember, whenever Jesus asks a question, you better pay attention. In the gospels, he asks 307 questions. You know how many he answers? Three. Okay, when he asks a question, there's incredible meaning and purpose behind it. So Pilate thinks he's got all the power. Pilate thinks he's the one in charge. Jesus, are you king of the Jews? I got to figure this out. But what's really happening? Jesus is examining him right back. He says, how'd you come to think about that? People talking to you about me? And he starts to probe Pilate's So what I want to do with you this morning is I want to look at both of those examinations. 
I want to look at the way Pilate examines Jesus, and I want to look at the way Jesus examines Pilate, and I want to see what we might learn about who God is. I want us to see what we might learn about ourselves in the process. So first, let's look at Pilate examining Jesus. He comes before, you know, and again, as I said earlier, that's kind of the vogue thing to do these days, to examine the nature and character of God. Who do I believe God to do? So we'll just do it the way the cultural does it, the culture does it, and we'll just try to do it in as intellectual and as logical a format as we possibly can. So Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? But understand, in the Greek, it's a little more sarcastic than that. It has a little bit more of an edge to it than just, are you the king of the Jews? He's kind of saying, like looks at Jesus, like, you're the king of the Jews? Like, looking at you, you ain't much, right? Are you, are you really the king of the Jews? Can I really believe that to be true? And so you have to go back to what Jesus has said before, and, and that is exactly what Jesus has said. So Pilate asked the question, kind of like, I've, I've heard this, you don't look like much, but he's being tried for blasphemy. He's being tried for saying that he is God. We talked about this a little bit last week, didn't we? But Jesus said openly and forthrightly, I am. In Mark 16, verse 62, he's asked, are you the son of God? He says, I am. It goes back to Exodus 3. We talked about this last week when Moses asks God, who am I to say is sending me to Pharaoh? And he says, I am which literally means I will be who I will be. And when Jesus said it in the early part of John 18, what happened to all those 300 soldiers? You remember last week, Jesus says, I am, and they all fell down because they knew what it meant. Jesus was 100% saying, I am God. I and the creator of the universe are one in the same. I'm the living God, I'm the almighty God. And then he has the audacity in John chapter 10 to say, I and the Father are one. So there's no mistaking it. Jesus is a historical figure. And this is what gets hard. Man, you're, you live in this culture today and you're trying to figure out who God is. The people who really don't want it to, to believe it to be true, it's kind of hard to get around the historicity of Jesus, right? Jesus was a real guy and nobody debates that. And then Jesus lived and walked among many and there were hundreds and hundreds of eyewitnesses. And if Jesus hadn't said these things, we would have works of antiquity and works of history that would negate and disagree with these statements, but we have no such works. And so we believe the veracity of the scriptures is precisely that, that Jesus indeed said he was God. So with Pilate, let's examine the statement. C.S. Lewis, I think, does a great job of intellectually walking through it. Do we believe it or not? Well, let's just kind of take a step back and say, all right, Jesus says he's God. That leaves us two options. It's either true or it's false. So let's take the false side first. If Jesus said he was God and it's not true, then you have two options for why he would make that false statement. Either Jesus is a liar, so he's saying he's God, but he knows it's not true. He's a liar, or he's saying he's God, he's God, and he doesn't know it's true. So he's delusional. He's nuts. So let's, let's look for a second at both of those options. So Jesus says he's God. It's a false statement. So the first thing, he's a, Jesus is a liar. And you go, wow, if, if that's true, then Jesus is one of the most colossal liars of all time, because everything he's just said in this text says he's building a kingdom of what? A kingdom of truth. 
Everything Jesus was about was truth. And the truth will make you free. So if Jesus was lying about it, I mean, he's going to be one of the most colossal liars of all time. But not only that, if he's lying about it, then Jesus would be absolutely the pure embodiment of evil, wouldn't he? Because he's deceiving people about their salvation. He's trying to convince people to put their lives in his hands falsely. And if there was another means by which they could be saved, and he's talking them into something that's a lie, is there anything more evil than that? Not to mention the fact that if Jesus was lying about it, is there anyone more foolish? Because what did the lie bring him? The lie brought him nothing but horrible, gruesome torture and suffering and abysmal death. And how many dishonest people do you know? How many people that are just colossal liars are gonna go with a lie all the way to abject suffering and death? Do you really think if Jesus was making it up and he was just saying he was God and it wasn't true, do you really think he goes all the way to the cross and goes through all that and never gives it up? The only thing he has to do to stop the suffering is say, no, I'm not God, I made it up. It's not true. And then it all stops. But he didn't say that. So then you have to step back and ask yourself and go, well, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I can't put a whole lot of stock in Jesus saying he was God and it's false and he was lying about it. Because it doesn't seem like it makes a lot of sense for me to say, based on the evidence, that Jesus is a liar. So then you have to say, okay, that's not it. Well, then it's a false statement and Jesus is just nuts. He's just deluded. Jesus is insane. And you go, all right, well, what's the evidence for the insanity of Jesus, for the deluded nature of Jesus? It's, it's pretty thin. You look at what C.S. Lewis said about this idea. He says, the discrepancy between the depth and sanity of his moral teaching, so the way Jesus taught the logic of his arguments, the way it all hung together, and the rampant megalomania. So he was just an egomaniac out of control, which must lie behind his theological teaching unless he's indeed the son of God, has never been satisfactorily explained. So for him to to be as cogent and as clear as he was and yet be a crazy person, that doesn't make a lot of sense. That doesn't really hold up. Philip Schaff writes, is such an intellect clear as the sky, bracing as the mountain air, sharp and penetrating as a sword, liable to a radical and serious delusion concerning his own character. So could his mind be that sharp, that focused, that clear, and he still be crazy? I mean, that doesn't, I mean, I mean, I suppose it's possible, but what do we know about just general insanity and people who have mental delusions about who they are, people who think they're God when they're not? Normally, those delusions show up in other behaviors in their life. In other words, if he said, well, I'm God, well, then there would be some other part of Jesus's life where he's gonna act like a crazy person, but we don't have any of that evidence. There's nothing else to suggest that Jesus was deluded or insane in any other part of his life. And so you go, when I, when I look at the reasons why Jesus would make a false statement about the fact that he was God, doesn't make a lot of sense that he was a liar, and it doesn't make a lot of sense for me to say he was crazy. So where does that leave me? That leaves me with option two. It's true. 
Jesus made a statement. He said, I'm the living God. I'm God in human flesh. And now the question becomes, what do we do with that? We have two options. We can accept it or we can reject it. Again, from C.S. Lewis, he says, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said, like, I'm God, would not be a great moral teacher. Right? You can't say someone's a great moral teacher who also makes a statement that he's God. He'd either be crazy, he's a lunatic, or he's the devil. He's deluding people about their salvation. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. You must make your choice. So logically, intellectually, we look at the statements that Jesus made that are corroborated by eyewitnesses. Is it true or is false? Well, it doesn't make a lot of sense for me to say he was lying or he was nuts. So if it's true, then what do I do with that? And people, we can't fail in the way that Pilate failed because where did Pilate fail? He failed in not making a decision. He says, well, I don't really find any basis for the charge, but I don't know. And he takes him back out in front of the people. Friends, Jesus is constantly bringing before us the question, the question that he asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? Like Pilate, we are examining Jesus and when we look at it logically and intellectually and clearly and we look at the propensity of the, the preponderance of the evidence, where does it point? It points to the Godhood of Jesus Christ. And if Jesus is God, then it changes everything else. So Pilate examines Jesus, but guess what? Jesus is examining Pilate. So here's Jesus. And he's suffering. He's already been beaten and tortured. And yet Jesus, his heart is still leaning towards Pilate because he says to Pilate, he goes, you think I'm a king? Who told you that? Have people talked to you about me? And the, the Psalms tell us God desires that no one should perish. So Jesus, even knowing what's happening and the role that Pilate was gonna play, there had to have been a part of him that wondered, man, have you heard what they've said about me? Have you heard about the miracles? Are you really spiritually curious that maybe I am the Messiah, that maybe I am God in human flesh, or is your question merely a political one because you're scared I am an earthly king, I'm gonna come and I'm gonna take over and I will obliterate Rome. Is that what you're really worried about? Was it a spiritual or a personal question? But then in verse 36, Jesus even tries to help him out. He says, you know, I, I am a king, but my kingdom's not of this world. My kingdom is a spiritual one, and it's a kingdom of truth. He says to Pilate, look, I, my kingdom's not here. I'm no threat to you from an earthly standpoint. I have a spiritual kingdom, and my spiritual kingdom is grounded in what is true, what is life-giving. And then Pilate gives the standard 21st century American answer to everything that Jesus has revealed, that God has revealed about himself through Christ. Pilate looks at Jesus and says, what is truth? What is truth? It's the answer of our culture today. We can't know what truth is. What is truth? Truth is what you make of it. It's a cynical answer as if truth cannot be known. And yet in mere days, 
Jesus would indeed prove that he is the way and the truth and the life when on the third day, Jesus rose again from the dead and the soldier at his side who saw it all said, surely this was the son of God. But then there's kind of a final exam in the story, isn't there? So Pilate examines Jesus. Jesus examines Pilate. And then Pilate takes Jesus to the people. And he says, look, I can't find a reason to charge him. What do you want to do with him? What are you going to do with Jesus? And the chilling answer that they all give is give us Barabbas. And then they cry out, crucify him. Crucify him. And so friends, we would be expected likely today to think that question, what am I going to do with Jesus? That's Pilate's examine. What are we going to do with this declaration that Jesus is God? What are you going to do with Jesus? But I would encourage you to realize that the more important question is not what are you going to do with Jesus, but what is Jesus going to do with you? Because the examination goes both ways. And when you stand before Jesus, this is something I think maybe because of my Roman Catholic background, I always fear that God spends most of his time being disappointed with me and being loving towards me a little. Because I fundamentally don't understand some dynamics of the gospel. And you would think after 31 years in ministry, I'd know that a little better. But you want to know? what God's going to do with you. It's why I love a short story by Ernest Hemingway called The Capital of the World. It's by a young man. Well, it's by Ernest Hemingway, but it's about a young man named Paco. And Paco lives in Madrid, Spain, and he has a terrible relationship with his dad, and there's all kinds of behavioral issues. And eventually he leaves the house. He becomes homeless. He's living out in the city on his own. He's in terrible shape. And his dad is so distraught about this broken relationship with his son that he takes out a full-page ad in the Madrid newspaper. And it says, Paco, meet me at the Hotel Montaña Tuesday at noon. All is forgiven. And Paco was a fairly common Spanish name. And in the story, 800 young men named Paco showed up at the hotel looking for the forgiveness of their fathers. You know, too often I think God is disappointed with me and I need to remember my father who says to me and to all of you, you know what God is gonna do with you when you turn to him in faith and in all your brokenness? He's gonna say, come home. All is forgiven. All is forgiven through my son Jesus who gave his life for your redemption. So friends, know today that yes, we need to study and we need to think about what we believe to be true about our God. But more than that is the way in which God studies us the way in which God 
examines our hearts and reveals himself to us. He bathes us in his grace, calling us to come home. My son, my daughter, all is forgiven. Come home. Come home. I pray that you would know that deep in your heart and you would know the fellowship of faith with our God and Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, truth be told, every single one of us in this room could be named Paco because we all know what it is to do what we want. We all know what it is to behave in ways that are contrary to your truth because you are a God of truth. And you've told us that when we live according to what is true, that your truth is the path to life. And so, Father, I thank you for the back and forth between Pilate and Jesus because it shows us today the depth of his suffering, the lengths to which he was willing to go to stand in our place, to take the punishment that should have been ours, to place it upon himself, so that today we could hear the gentle and good words, the good news of your call for us to come home, to come back to you, our God, for all is forgiven. All has been made right, and you welcome us into your family. Father, I pray that any who may wander today, any who may not know you, would see not only the spiritual truth, but the intellectual truth of where the evidence leads, that indeed you are God, and it is in you that we place our trust and our life. We ask it today in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.